you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. This morning we will be reading from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. You can also find the passage on the insert that came with your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's message. Last week, if you were with us, we read through the genealogy of Adam. We go from Adam unto Noah. And for the next several weeks, we will be going through the story of Noah and how this point in history redirects the bloodlines, um, the bloodline of the serpent and the bloodline of the woman two threads that we have been following for some time now. And sadly, as we see this redirecting of the two lines, what we actually find is a merging of them. As sin continued to spread and grow in both in, in occurrence and degree, we find ourselves at a dark place. But this shouldn't surprise us, considering the world that we live in. As we have talked about these distinctions and these markers, the line of God and their righteousness and their following after the Lord and the line of the serpent and their self-righteousness and their desire to promote sin. You would think that we would continue these distinct threads, these distinct lines, these distinct conversations. But much like we see today, as time goes on, they grow closer and closer together. And this is an important reminder for us today. We must guard our hearts at all costs. We are most at danger when we believe that we could never, nor would we ever, fall into particular types of sin. I admit there's a weightiness to our passage this morning. And I hope that as we approach it, we consider that weightiness and approach it with the seriousness and reverence that it deserves. As the title states, God laments over the wickedness of mankind. We will take a look inside the mind and the heart of our God today, and I pray that it will be sobering for us all. With that in mind, I do invite you to look with me at our passage. I will read for us Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through the 8th verse. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made man. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Our only hope for you and for me today is that that refrain is true of us as well. May we now go to the Lord and ask his blessing and mercy upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, if you do not cleanse us, we will not be clean. If you do not declare us whole, we will be fragmented. If you do not change the direction of our hearts and pour out your Spirit upon us, we will suffer the fate of many in mankind who chased their sin, established their idols, and sought to be gods of their own. Father, may that not be true of us here today. May we cling to you and cling to your word. May we hide its truths in our hearts that we may not sin against you. I pray for the blessing and the power of your spirit this morning. Work in the lives of your people that they may not sin in my trust in the God whom they love. We thank you for this passage and ask now you give us wisdom as we seek to apply it to our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. There are a few times in Scripture that we so clearly see the depravity of man. One instance that immediately comes to mind is the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a beautiful, beautiful book of judgment, of deliverance, of God's wrath, and of God's mercy. It's designed as a, a cyclical book as we spiral, unfortunately, downward to the point that this refrain begins and then occurs again and again and again. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. The job of the judges were to rescue the people of Israel out of this refrain, out of this declaration. But the sadness of the book and the reality of the human heart is by the time you start to get to those sixth and seventh judges, you find out that they too have been corrupted by sin. That they too are following the wickedness of the people and that they too have forgotten the God whom they were called to serve. Well, here in our passage, much earlier than the book of Judges, we see where this stems from. And actually, if we take an honest assessment, we have already seen where this stems from. This stems from Genesis 3 and the fall. But this idea that, that man follows his own desires into sin is overwhelmingly displayed in our passage this morning. And please note, we are all prone to this desire to chase wickedness and pleasure ourselves. Because of this, I think it is vital that we come to an understanding of our passage. It's here that we not only see sin for what it is, but we're actually given a divine glimpse of it from God's perspective. 
we get to see and get to hear the mind and the heart of God and how he views our wickedness. Because of this, and because of God's holiness, we will see that sin must be dealt with. And I pray, as I've already mentioned, that this gives us a sober understanding of our hearts today. I want us to look at three actions that God takes in light of sin. We find these in our passage. In the first four verses, we see that God does respond to man's rebellion. God is not a, a, he does not sit idly by, but he is an active participant in the lives of man. Secondly, we see in verses 5 through 7 that sin requires judgment and God is that judge who dispenses it. And then lastly, we will see that God alone provides escape from his own judgment. We find that in the concluding verse of this passage, verse 8. He is both the judge and the way out. And looking at this passage, we must come to terms with the weight of sin as well as the love of the Savior. With that in mind, let's jump into our passage beginning in verse 1. And we are immediately struck, and, and, and you should be hit with the overwhelming weight of sin. Now, there are linguistic difficulties this morning. I, I can't pronounce that clear enough. And we will address them as well as we can. But regardless of those difficulties, which we will talk about in just a moment, it is clear and it is apparent that this is what happens when man strays farther and farther away from God. As man chases his own heart, his own idols, his own desires, we come to a place of total depravity and, and utter recklessness. This should, if nothing else, be a very sobering thought. All of us are one generation away from the God we love and the God we worship being forgotten in our households. May we never take that lightly. And may we never forget the story of Israel again and again and again in the biblical narrative. To last week, praise God for the bloodline of Seth. To only this week, one chapter later, be warning ourselves of its wickedness should strike all of us to our very hearts. And this should come as a bit of a surprise. As we uplifted this bloodline, as we uplifted this thread, and yet, does it surprise us? Sin affects all of us. We must look at it with seriousness and come to the conclusion that if it's not for God's mercy and God's grace, we would all be dead in our sin. With that in mind, I want to walk through these first four verses. And I want to note some of the challenges in our text. We will highlight some major views of them. 
and try to come to an understanding of what is taking place. But I really do think as we dig into this, always lay in the backdrop, always keep in mind that the, the clear message of this passage is the weight of sin and the cost of man's recklessness. Now with that in mind, let's talk about the sons of God. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, there are three major interpretations to this passage, and we will highlight each of them this morning. Each of them are equally difficult to interpret and to apply. However, that should not deter us from digging into God's Word. First, we could read this passage and conclude that the sons of God are fallen angels. In the Old Testament, most of the time that this phrase is used, as in almost every time that this phrase is used, it's used of angelic beings. This view would be the view of the early church. Church fathers such as Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen all held to the fact that these were fallen angels. If that is the case, then the sin here would be mankind involving itself in sexual relations with beings not of their kind. It would be a breaking of the creation mandate. It would be a disruption of the creation order. Further, it would involve having to understand and having to explain angels either taking on human form and engaging in sexual practice or demonic possession to the degree of fully incorporating humans. You can see why this is a difficult interpretation of this text, but there are some that hold to it. The second view... The second view is that these sons of God are royalty, that they are rulers, that they are those in authority. This would be the view um, championed by scholar Meredith Klein, as well as many Jewish scholars. Uh, this is the predominant theory in Jewish scholarship. Um, and the um, references to this would be David being called God's son people of God being called children of God. We find this in 2 Samuel 7.14. We find this also in Psalm 2.7. This view came about in opposition to the notion that angels could engage in sexual intercourse, a view that um, seems to be refuted in the New Testament. This, then, the sin here would be that kings and leaders took whomever they chose as wives and engaged them in polygamous relationships. They just accumulated them and treated them like stock, like a possession. There's a lot of benefits to this view, and namely in that God punishes man for this, not the angels. We don't get a sense that God seeks retribution on angels for what took place. This is also... A, um, a view that has some merit because what do we see in the biblical narrative but 
kings and rulers and those in authority taking wives of themselves and doing what they please with them, much often to their own demise. Well, the third view, the third and final view, and the one that I'm most convinced by, is that the sons of God are Sethites, or people of the line of Seth. Then, or thus, the daughters of man are of the line of Cain. This would fit what we've been seeing in the biblical narrative to this point, and it would also explain why, by the end of this section, we read the line of Seth has become perverted. It has completely become corrupted, and it was done so by being unequally yoked with pagan wives. Now, this should sound familiar to us, for how often in the biblical narrative do the sons of God go astray when they take wives from the nations around them? Solomon, Samson, and others immediately come to mind in this understanding. Now, I admit that there are good reasons for choosing each of these interpretive options. And whichever way we go, whichever understanding we take, we must conclude that improper sexual union led to the downfall of those engaged in it. We must, as we said as we started, weigh the sin, even in light of the method or mode that led to it being engaged in. And while we see this, and, and, and when this takes place, we are immediately struck with God's response. So that's the first two verses. Well, verse 3, God reacts. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now this does lead us to our second interpretive difficulty. God limits the years of man in response to the sexual perversion and continuation into sin. But the question is, is this God limiting the lifespan of man... So, to this point, we've seen people live nearly 1,000 years. Is God saying, no, they're going to live to a maximum of 120? Or, is this God issuing a warning? In 120 years, I will bring about the flood. So, is this a, a limiting of the lifespan of man, or a forewarning of divine judgment? To go ahead and give you my answer, I think it's a both and not an either-or. I believe that there is strong evidence into the age of man. If you charted out the, the lifespan of, of those living on the earth, we see a dramatic decline post-flood um, to the point that they begin living around 100, 120 years. There's also evidence to interpret this as a grace period before the flood. We can look at the story of Jonah, and his message we have before the Ninevites in 40 days, yet this city will be overturned. God has, an, has made an example of warning people of coming judgment in an effort to seek and cause repentance. And so while both of these are plausible, I do believe and conclude that they are both true. That we do see a limiting in the lifespan of man. That's both a mercy and an act of judgment. And a forewarning of coming judgment. 
And then the final matter we must cover in this beginning section in our third interpretive difficulty, the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Nephilim are mentioned here. We also find them in Numbers 13.33. There the Israelite spies are seeing the Nephilim and we get this interesting um, conclusion that Israel is like grasshoppers before these mighty men. And if you go to, to Calvin, Calvin is convinced that the Nephilim are a particularly strong group of men. So they are ones who are defined by their strength, their physical characteristics. So much so that they used their powers of strength to, in, to exact their rule upon others. He presupposes that they could be some of the first tyrannical rulers who became widely known for their ruthlessness in battle and their feats of strength. And so while we've seen many great acts of sin in the first section, and as we go through each of these sections, we, we do need to focus on the sin while not minimizing these interesting situations. We should also see and, and quickly transition to the fact that God brings judgment. That God does not let sin continue. That God does not let sin just abound and go on untouched. We saw that with him limiting the days of man. And we see that here in our second section. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. God's assessment of man was that his wickedness was great. God did not judge man too harshly for his sin. Man was completely and without reservation engaged in sin. Look at the language here. His heart and his intention was only towards sin continuously. Every intention was only evil. And the, the Hebrew word here for intent is a cognate or lexical relative to the word design. And this is important because this takes us back to Genesis 2-7, where man is designed or fashioned after the image of God. And what we see is, is these interesting bookends. 2-7, man is formed, designed, fashioned, created in the image of God, to hear man's intent, man's design, is evil. That's how far we've come in just a few chapters. And really, if you think about those two different distinctions, in the image and of the likeness of God, intent toward evil, we really could be describing the two bloodlines. The bloodline of Cain and the bloodline of Seth or the children of God, or the children of the serpent. These are things that we have described each of them. The bloodline of Cain being evil, wicked, evil intent. The bloodline of Seth, like God. And yet, where we find ourselves in our text, the two are intermingling. 
The two are crossing. The, the two are blurring together. Which leads us to conclude that nobody is safe from sin and from falling into its snare. So much so, as we continue in our text, we read these words. The Lord regretted that He made man on earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. I want to just pause for a moment and let the weight of that passage fall upon us. The Lord regretted that He had made man, and it grieved Him to His heart. It's hard to see in English, but again, if we went to the Hebrew, we see a direct connection between this verse. It's almost a a direct copy of what Lamech said of Noah in Genesis 5.28. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from painful toil of our hands. Grief from the curse and pain and toil are all mentioned by Lamech, hoping that Noah would bring restoration, would would save the people from this. And then God saying, this is where man is. They need relief from grief and from toil. They will and are feeling the pain of the curse. And this in turn reminds us of the fall itself. And it gives us information about the character of God. God was grieved by the fall. God has a deep-seated hatred of sin. And we must see it for what it is. It's an act of treason against our Creator and our Father. It is choosing us, ourselves, over God. We as creatures often grow numb to the weight of sin. However, God will always see it for what it is. And it grieves him to the point that his solution is to bring divine judgment upon all mankind. And verse 7 tells us how God intended to carry that judgment out. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them. Again, let the weight of those words fall upon you this morning. That's the degree to which God must respond to sin. That's how it must be dealt with. All of creation was affected by the fall, man, beast, and the ground. Therefore, it is appropriate that all which has been marred would face the judgment. Now, some will see this and conclude that's too harsh a punishment. They will ask about those who are young, old, lame, etc., They will want to find injustice in God. But let me ask you this. Can a sovereign holy God know the heart and intention of every living creature, even those who are too young or too old to express it? Yes. Can God bring judgment upon that which he has created? Yes. Is God more or less just to bring judgment upon those who we would look at and say don't deserve it? Well, thankfully, Paul answers this question well in Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
What will the molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? This may make us uncomfortable, and it should. But the reality is our problem is with God. And if nothing else, when we read this, and when we interact with this text, our only response, it shouldn't be anger. It shouldn't be how dare you. It shouldn't be how could you. It shouldn't be why God. It should be forgive me, a sinner. It should be to immediately and swiftly plea with that God to save me from that wrath. It should be for mercy and for forgiveness. This passage is heavy. And I hope you see and feel the weight of it this morning. And as we've seen in Genesis before, it would be very cruel of me to end here. Because there's not a lot of hope in those first seven verses. There's a lot of truth in it. It's all true. And it really does speak to the state of man and the state of our hearts. But the text does not end there, nor can we. This section ends in verse 8. And in verse 8, we find hope. We find good news. Really, what we find is the gospel. So... Let's look one last time at our passage and conclude by seeing that God alone provides escape from sin's judgment. I hope and pray that you see sin for what it is. Sin is cancerous and it spreads like wildfire. It consumes all it touches. And if we were left in it, we would be without hope. It's easy to despair when we look at the corruption of the line of Seth and the consequences of the fall as seen in the account of Noah. And in some ways, I feel that this passage has been written so that we do feel that weight, so that we don't linger too much in the celebration of chapter 5 and praise God for this bloodline that is pure and righteous and holy, but that we see that all has been affected and touched and marred by sin. same time we must read verse 8 but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord one of my favorite quotes from Pastor Tony Felice and I bring it up any chance I can that word right there but may be one of the most powerful words in all of scripture it may be one of the most dramatic moments and every time we see it we've got to stop because everything we've heard, everything we've read, everything in 1 through 7 is absolutely 100% true. But this says, in light of, in contrast with, as opposition to, 1 through 7, verse 8. And we should see the two and pit them together and against one another and come to the conclusion that we are given. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean? It means he was saved. 
It, was, it means he found forgiveness and deliverance and hope and mercy. One commentator defines it like this. To find favor means a formal expression when someone in authority helps someone without status. To be saved, to be rescued by someone who is an authority, who has the ability and has the power and has the knowledge and has the means to do so to someone who doesn't. This really defines our relationship with God. This is a, a beautiful picture of who we are before our Creator. And I want to be very careful here. And we must be. You cannot translate this text, Noah earned favor before the Lord. You cannot read it that way. Now, interestingly enough, you can actually get that word from the original Hebrew word. And some translations do translate it that way. However, I believe it is a mistranslation. And even if it is a, a correct usage of the word, we can't see it as Noah worked hard enough, tried hard enough, did enough, stood upright enough that God was pleased with him. Because here's a little secret of our passage. While Noah fits in verse 8, he also fits in 1 through 7. We see Noah here, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, but Noah is also described in 1 through 7. The heart of man was toward wickedness and evil. If God did not put in verse 8, Noah would be with everybody else. If God did not interject this passage, if that but was not here, it would describe Noah, and it would describe his children and their wives. But God... And this is the gospel. This is how it works. This is the beauty of our Savior. It's not by us earning favor before God. Because we, the same thing applies. Those first seven verses describe us. That's where we are. That's where our hearts are. That's where our desires are. We chase the evil things of this world. We pursue sin. And yet, for those who trust in God by faith, we receive His love and His forgiveness by His mercy, by His faithfulness, by His working out our salvation. God has to give you faith before you can receive Him in faith. And that's good news. It means it's not up to us. If it's 100% in the hands of God, it can't fail. We can't mess it up. Because we would if we could. God would save Noah and his sons and their wives. God would keep that thread going. Sure, it's not as glorious as the line of Seth as we read in the previous chapter. Sure, it was not people on top of people on top of people. It was eight. But through eight, God saved his bloodline, his name. Through eight, he would restore the peoples of the earth. And really, if you narrow it down, it's through one. Not Noah, but Jesus. Jesus would be the one to preserve and protect that bloodline. 
Jesus and His perfect obedience. The only one to ever have lived that doesn't fit in the first seven verses. The only one to ever have lived to be able to say my heart and my intention and my desires was toward God and not toward man and not toward sin. And so we're left asking ourselves, and whom are we going to trust? Ourselves? Well, here's our history. Here's our bloodline. Here's our DNA. Here's what we produce. We're God. You cannot escape the pending judgment for your sin. Our lives have been limited in their days. And even more honestly, we don't know how many we get. God cannot let sin go unpunished. Or else he is a liar and not holy. He didn't leave it be in the days of Noah. Nor will he on the coming day of judgment. Your only saving grace is the shed blood of Jesus. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Will you find favor in God's eyes as well. Let me tell you, the only way you're going to do so is by clinging to Jesus Christ today. Now, don't wait. We don't know what's going to happen when we leave today. We don't know what this day is going to bring or if we'll be granted tomorrow. Repent of your sin. Turn from your wickedness. Trust in Christ and rest in His finished work for you. God laments over sin but rejoices each and every time a sinner comes home. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that passages such as this stir our hearts. It it forces us to look in the mirror, to weigh our lives, and to recognize our need for you. We've confessed our sin in this service. We've affirmed our faith. We've saw forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We've sung unto your glorious name and our need for you. And we've been reminded yet again through the scriptures that it's all in your hand. And so now as we transition into a time of observance of the sacrament, may we trust in you and you alone. May we cling to you for that thread, the hope we have in our Savior. May we not rest in ourselves, but you. I pray that for each and every one here. I pray that for those joining us online. I pray that we wouldn't waste another day, another minute, another moment. We trust in you now and forevermore. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.